Hey, you ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? You can do that at Aaron's. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech. Plus, Aaron's has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. Life's always changing. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com to see what I'm talking about. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. You got to see your local store for details. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you're looking for a thermal device that does pretty much everything on the planet, check out Pard Optics FT34 Thermal Front Clip-On. It is a game changer in thermal. It's a versatile three-in-one device with a quick detach mount for easy scope attachment, eliminating the need for re-zeroing you know, every time you put it on. It offers features like one-shot zero, PIP mode, blind pixel correction, auto hot target tracking, Wi-Fi connectivity, and, this gets my kid very excited, video recording to a 128 gigabyte micro SD card. You can even use it as a compact handheld spotter for scouting. This unit does it all. Check out the FT34 as well as many other great optics at www.pard, that's P-A-R-D.com. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Corinne, you know how a lot of times we come up with what the show is going to be called, but then we forget and it's called something different? That doesn't really happen. I feel like it does. I feel like a lot of times I'll be like, hey, let's call the show this, and it winds up not being called that. Eh, arguable. But okay. I'll give it to you. Pine Titty should be this episode. <laughs> no one's going to know why for now, but later they'll know. Tommy knows what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Tommy knows exactly what I'm talking about. We're recording today from the flagship First Light store in Haley, Idaho. What is that, you might ask? It's the flagship First Light store in Haley, Idaho. If you want to find the best uh, hunting gear on the planet, you come into this store and get it. And and to give you a, a real virtual experience of what it's like, we have today Keith and Spa. Should be Ann Spatch. Yeah. But it's not. We all agree. It's Ann Spot and Dom <laughs> Cooper. And, 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 and between you guys, can you quickly calculate? Someone walks in the door. What's the likelihood they'll encounter one or both of you? 
I would say 70%. I live in here, so probably even more than that. Dom's in here a lot, though. So so, there, so there's like a, a, a likelihood that you would come in and they would find you guys. So after this, they'll be comfortable coming in knowing who they're looking for. Just give me a high five. I'm here every day. Okay. <laughs> now, you'll know because one of them has an insane mullet. I've been working on it a while, man. And one of them's Australian. Sure am. G'day. So, so the, you know, we've had we had another Australian on recently. You guys have been making a strong showing. Yep, uh, we're we're an interesting uh, breed of people. Great. Uh, this other Australian um, is a PH in Africa, and and you're here, and so we're catching them as they kind of get spun off into the broader outside world. Yeah. Also joined by Tommy Edson, um, known as the Blue Collar Scholar, always bragging up how good he does on Meat Eater Trivia. He came down, lost. <laughs> then uh, the uh, Pawsgate scandal broke. What was that The scandal? Blue Collar Pawser is my new nickname at work. Oh, and then we caught wind that he... Yeah. That he what, the reason he performs well in private is he pauses the show. Well, I'm going to let you finish. Go ahead. Well, oh, I mean, you want me to go? Uh, yeah, you no, pause the I, show I expl- I said, and think your- about it longer, which is like, <laughs> no kidding, you're going to win. If I could like pause it for a couple days. <laughs> a couple days. And like, be like, well, yeah, I was I actually, yeah. It was more like, you know, three or four days. You ever do a little research while it's paused? No. I'm, I work in a high place, in a fast place environment. And I was like, but... At the same time, I could pause the game, continue with my job while I was communicating with somebody at work and not miss like, I didn't, there's times where I don't have time to stop even for the five seconds and write my answer down. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and so that, but then it does, I got to thinking about it and it gave me a little bit, I thought, does it give me a competitive advantage? And so then I said something to Joey, one of the guys on the rodeo team, and I even texted you. And you're like, oh, you cheater. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> That's what he sounds like. Yeah. So, Pawsgate. Uh, um, Tommy, here, here's why we're going to name, here's why the show's going to be called High and Titty. Tommy, recently Doug, my buddy Bubbly Doug Duran, sends me a screenshot of an exchange <laughs> he has with Tommy. Uh, Tommy has great. this to say to Doug. Quick cow question. If you're milking a cow and it's a race, which udder or nipple are you going for? Is there something in particular I should be looking for in an udder? <laughs> We're going to dive into all that. Let's dive because, in. <laughs> in due time. Because I, I've pointed out a couple times, we talked about it a lot. You know, we came out with the shirt. We came out with the wild cow milk t-shirt. Correct. Because... Uh, we dug deep here. We take our, our, you know, we take our spending seriously. We dug deep and sponsored Tommy's Wild Cow Milk and Rodeo team for three hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. And he sent me. A, I shouldn't say this because people are going to start pilfering my mailbox. I wouldn't say it. You could, well, you could say it. Tommy sent me the winnings in cash, rolled up in a paper. In shouldn't an envelope. you do that? You shouldn't do that. No, that's fine. Oh, <laughs> so now they're just sitting on my desk like an envelope of cash that I need to go and find some way to integrate into. I'm gonna hand it off to somebody. I figured well, that's what no, I, I liked did. it because I like yeah. to feel that man. Yeah, I like yeah, to it's, feel it's, that. It's a good feeling when that judge hands you that wad of cash. You're like, there's a picture somewhere of me. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, how many tournaments you guys done? That would be uh, the third one, I think. Two. This is our second year. No, 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 no. I mean, how many, uh, how many rodeos you participated in so far this year? I think that's the third one. Okay. Oh, this this year? Yeah. That's all. We only do two a year. You do two a year. Yep. When's the next one? September. Oh, that I knew there was more to yeah. come. Yep. All right. Yep. So we got we recoup some of our money, and the money's yep. going into the land access initiative, Meteors right. Land Access Initiative, which we need to do. We need to. We're going to get heavy duty on raising some money for that yeah. initiative coming up. So we're going to get into what because we had a lot of questions. A lot of questions came in about I don't understand how that's a thing. What wild cow milking? Wild cow milking and rodeos. Oh, I mean people kind of get it. it like bull riding. They're like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been exposed to that. That resonates with me. Team roping. People will be like, yeah, I've I've seen that around. Right. Wild cow milking. They don't know what you're talking about. Right. It's like most rodeo events like have a they have a where they originated. You know, you have like tie down roping, calf roping, where you tie down your calf and you got to go back to your saddlebags and grab your whatever shots, go up, give. But you had to make sure he was stayed tied. That's why the time is set for. I think it's five or six seconds. Your cow's got to stay tied while he's down. All these events have like beginnings. Like where they begin from. No, we'll, we'll get into the history. Yeah. We're gonna do that pretty soon. Yeah. Um, and then we're gonna get. We're, we're also joining us here in the in the first light store. Zeb Hogan. I have two ways to describe you, and they seem contradictory. One is host of Nat Geo's Monster Fish Show, or the United uh, United Nations Convention on Migratory Species Scientific Counselor for Fish. Just seems different. <laughs> I would lean into the latter one because it sounds like really the guy you'd want to talk to if you want to talk about fish. Fair enough. And then you're also author of Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish, um, which is available now, correct? Published last month, yep. Published last month. And in it, and I, I, I watched um, some things Kryn sent me, and what, what really hooked me on talking to you is um, the question of how – why is the question, what is the big, what is the biggest large, oh, sorry, the question, what is the world's largest freshwater fish? Why it takes a book to not quite answer that question. <laughs> it's yeah. a rich question. And we're going to get in a little bit into the richness of that question, which is definitions stacked on top of de- definitions and also a, um, a kind of a that, that a lot of the, the a lot of these fish that might be contenders are in an alarming state population wise yeah it seems like the modern world is not friendly to huge freshwater fish um so we're gonna spend time on that but first off i want to jump back into uh what happens when you walk into the first light store so what happens when you walk into the first light store i, I come in and i say uh, hi. Then what'll happen? Uh, man, the first light store is such an experience. The first thing I usually want to let people do is just c- kind of take a grasp of what they're walking into. It's really cool. You get the whole first line product. Not anywhere in the world where you can see this. So when you walk in here, we've got a huge line. Even the first light employees walk in, they're like, I didn't know we sold this much stuff. Oh, blow, yeah. Everybody I've been in here with is like, God, I didn't know that it, that this was all here yeah it's unbelievable between the waterfowl the ladies line all our western big game huge amount of product we can 
pointed customer towards. So it's really cool. What I really like at the store is the ability to like see that customer, talk to the customer and like figure out what they're wanting to do in the world. Like we've got a ton of people that are just doing elk hunts in Idaho, but then we get, we've had people from every state in the country at this stage. Oh really? Well, yep. That's cool. So it's really cool. You know, we help out people that are doing their first Africa trips. We've got people going down to Mexico for mule deer. We've got all the sorts of waterfowl hunters, bear hunters this spring. We're all over in the store. So I just, it's really cool to live vicariously through them and see what they're wanting to do and then to dial in what gear exactly they want. Super fun. Yeah. Wh where were you born? Where were you brought up? I was born in Colorado, but I've been an Idaho boy now for most of my life. So I grew up in Idaho Falls for the most part, went to school up at University of Idaho up in Moscow, mm -hmm. and I've been in the Wood River Valley now for about 18 years. Oh, long time. Yeah. I managed a store up in Ketchum, uh, a backpacking store, an outdoor store for a long time, just a block away from the old First Light headquarters. So I was there from the beginning with friends with all of that crew and watched the brand grow. And then when they came up with the idea of this store, it was something I could not say no to. It's too cool not to work here. Uh, how many people come in and they don't really know what they're walking into? And how oh. many people come in knowing what they're up to? You know, I'd say a majority of the people come to check out the store. This is a destination store. People do trips around the store. Yeah. So, but then we definitely have people that walk in here and they do like two or three steps and they go, it's a lot of camo in here. And you can see them just do a reverse and walk out. It's just not, not the right store for them. Yeah, it wasn't what they were looking for. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, but the majority of people are so stoked to come check out the store. Yeah. And uh, Dom, walk me through, how, how did you come to, how, how, what's the, like, the, uh, the Australia to Haley path? To typical Australia to Haley path. Yeah, see, I was, I was always an outdoors bloke, uh, but I came over to America when I was 14 and, uh, you know, kid reading a lot of rock in, in Hemingway. I, I thought, uh, you know, I grew up fishing and uh, hunting was the next step, as it often so is. Uh -huh. uh, and I came over when I was 14 and I went on a pheasant hunt and a coyote hunt. And it was probably the most miserable experience ever. Like you came over as a visitor. I came over as a, as a, as, a, as a visitor at the time. Yes, uh, I had uh, an old uh, Model Twenty One uh, sixteen gauge that someone lent me, and I went on this pheasant this pheasant hunt, and there was no dog or anything, and it was on BLM land in uh, southern Idaho, and uh, I think we got one bird up all day, and I didn't have the gear, didn't have the gear at all, and I actually had frost nip on my hands, and the one bird that flew up. I didn't even pull the trigger on because I couldn't work the safety on that little Model 21. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, I was like, man, that's a miserable experience. But, uh, you know, going back to, to guys like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt talking about uh, the, this strenuous life, I was like, man, this, this really sucked, but I had a lot of fun. What is it in me that, that really enjoyed this? And ever since then, I was just absolutely obsessed with Western hunting. Um, so every chance I got, every holiday, I'd come over to Idaho and, and, and hunt. I nearly got kicked out of college twice because I was hmm. trying to do that. But, but were you hunting in Australia too? Little bit. Uh, so I, I'm from Queensland, uh, and as you know, a lot of Queenslanders and Australians listening to this know that Queensland does not di define any game species of our game. So, so we have you know we have quite a quite a robust population of, of red deer and and fallow deer and chittle deer and pigs, but they're not defined as, as game by the state. Yeah. They're, they're defined as pests. So it, it's a lot of control rather so than managing them as a is an actual uh, asset to, yep, to the people. Uh, so I did, I did a bit, bunch of that over there, a lot of bow hunting, but it just never did it to me 
in the way that, that Idaho manages game and, and the relationship with public lands here. So I knew it as soon as I finished finished my education there and, and uh, finished my time, I, I wanted to move over to and the you, Were you involved in some kind of ranching type, rodeo type activities over there? Yeah. So I, I always had a bit of a quest for adventure. So uh, it, it, my, my mate and I basically worked out like what weeks we needed to be at college and which we didn't. So that we could just scrape by and pass because we wanted to, to cowboy and 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 hunt, uh-huh. and that that was basically our life over there. And, and mum and dad weren't too fond of it at the time, but uh, you know they understand it now. And uh, I was very lucky. Uh, my my old man and my sister actually came out last year, and we uh, came on a hunt with me uh, for the first time. And we were lucky enough to harvest an elk together and and uh, work our butts off for it and and pack it out. And yeah, oh, it's it was a very very uh, very yeah. special experience. Either so, you guys married? No, oh, yeah. at least this guy is. Uh, we've been yeah. married for a long time. You're not time. married. You've been married a long time. Uh, 15, 16. His, years his wife's actually really? a hair, his, oh, yeah. his wife's a hairdresser uh, and one of the most wow. highly highly acclaimed hairdressers in the valley. I will never guess. So you got like a revolt going against your wife. <laughs> <laughs> she, you know, she talks a big game how she doesn't like it, but she gets a glass of she wine in here it. and. She wants, her to run her, she wants to run her fingers oh, yeah. through the back of your hair. It's got the Kavorka, man. You can't, <laughs> oh, you can't fight that. Steal life. <laughs> all right so there you have it so if you come if, if you wind up anywhere in the vicinity come down to our our flagship first light store only place on the planet right now where you can walk in and touch stuff yeah it's a pretty neat experience yeah a couple of weird looking dudes uh get some great product in your hands yeah but now they know now they know like <laughs> it's like yeah a couple of alarming looking fellas <laughs> but deep down a couple hearts of gold i wouldn't go that far we uh, like we like to hunt man that's the most important part like, yeah, every, sp- everybody. Well, if you can speak to the equipment, that's great, man. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, thank you, man. Thanks for letting us be down here, too, because we had to lock the doors. Oh, absolutely. Now, this is a really cool experience. So it's awesome having you guys here. I'll point out that there was a person out there that wanted to come in who had a pretty, a very set, she knew exactly what she wanted. Absolutely. That was an educated customer coming in. We get a lot of those. Okay. Uh, definitely a lot of people, they know exactly what they want to put their hands on. They just want to try it on, see what they need. A lot of times we can close that sale right here. Yeah, Absolutely. she wasn't here to run her fingers through your hair. Mm-hmm. She was here to make a purchase. Well, you never know, man. No. Uh, all right, Tommy. Um, thanks for coming down. Yeah. Now, help enlighten enlighten people about the rodeo event called. What? Tell me what it's called. Just I want to make sure I got it right. Technically, our turn. Our our event is called Shoot Cow Milking. Oh, shoot cows. Basically, you you want me to just start like the rules? I want to know the history. I want soup to nuts. <clears throat> As I understand it, the history is like basically you're loading cows like with manpower instead of with horsepower. And, you know, basically the way that's kind of the crux or the beginning of how it, where that rodeo event started. What? As I understand it, how it works is your basic rodeo arena, your basic oval. One side is almost always grandstands. The other side is your bucking chutes and your where all your rough stock is. Yep. Your bulls, horses, bucking horses, whatever. You have in most standard rodeo arenas, you have six bucking chutes, three and three with a gap in the middle. May or may not be a gap in the middle. Wild cow milking, what they do is it's a three-man team. You have three positions on that team. You have a milker, a mugger, and an anchor. Anchor is kind of self-explanatory. Usually it's your biggest guy on the Mm -hmm. team. And he's a guy that usually is in charge of not letting go of that rope and 
in case there's catastrophe, <laughs> like two guys go down or one guy goes down, the big guy can usually just set down on his on bend his knees and squat down and stop a cow or ski around or get drug around. Yeah. But basically the mugger's job is to stop that cow. You at some point. We'll get to that in a second. The milker's job is pretty self-explanatory. His job is to milk it. They run six cows, wild heifers, into into the buck and shoots. Usually there's an event of some kind going on, a drill team or a clown show going on about that time so that, that each team draws a number out of a hat, okay. one through six. If you, whatever number you draw, you draw number three, that's your cow and that's your shoot, shoot three. You Inside... You take a rope halter. Everybody, every team is issued a rope halter and a clear beer bottle, like a Corona bottle. Yeah, yeah. They're not making it easy on you. You take somebody's got to get in the chute with the cow, put the rope halter on it, and usually you wait for the event to end. They'll go through and announce everybody's sponsors. But uh, so they, presumably they've checked to see if the cow's lactating. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. but that's something too. Is usual. Sometimes you do get one that's. Not nearly as moist as the rest of them, you know. Sure, yeah, you get a little yeah. dry one once in a while. That's yeah. why, hence my question to Bubbly Doug. You know, I want every upper hand I can get. Yep. You know, so, so you went straight to a so I went straight man. to the man. Yeah. yeah. But uh, then the buzzer goes off, and all six shoots open. That you will, all six guys open their shoots, and six cows come bulldozing out of there, and it's your job to stop them and not get run over. And, and there's 18 people in the arena. Correct. There's the rules of the of the of the event are you cannot touch that cow with your hands until she crosses a chalk line about 25 feet out in the arena. You can hold on to that rope, but you cannot physically touch that cow. Okay. Put your hands on that cow. As soon as she crosses the plane of that chalk line, boy, she's fair game. And usually the go-to move is just wrap her up in a headlock. And just hang on, man. Just don't let go. Okay. But there's a lot going on there, too, because your anchor is usually try Once somebody gets a hold of her, an anchor will usually try to either stabilize her back end so she's not pivoting around in a circle because a milker's not going to be able to get her. But a good milker can milk her if she's moving, but not at a dead run. Yeah. So, yeah. So you do you try to snake that teat right down into that beer nope. bottle? No, you try to squirt it into just there. Just squirt it in there. You need one good squirt. The last rule of it is one good squirt. You need one good squirt. Yeah. You don't got to fill the bottle. No. The rule is, is that you go out once. You How get is the cow that defined? We just had it. We, I'll point out. We just had a where we did a deep dive on competition regulations. <laughs> I was proud of fish yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. One good squirt isn't going to cut it for me. No, it's no. not going to cut it for you. How def who defines a good squirt? The judges, oh. because once once you get once the milker yells the word milk, it's the mugger's position to pull the halter because the milker has oh, to run across. Back up, back up, back up. Okay. It runs out. A guy's holding the rope. Correct. Crosses the plane. Somebody stops her. Okay. Someone grabs it. Yep. And someone tries to stabilize it. The milker goes in with the bottle. Yep. Okay. You get some milk. You. The rules are that you need one drop to come out of that bottle. In five seconds of it being upside down, but you got to oh, have the halter that, with you. That's what I was looking for. And sprint all the way across the arena to in front of the grandstands where there's a judge standing there with a flag and a rope. When you step that's into that ring, that's all you got to get. When you step into that ring, she'll she'll draw she'll throw a flag, and say time. 
you got to f- turn that bottle upside down and you got five seconds from that moment for one drop to, to run produce out. a drip one drop how uh here's the thing i struggle with how um if you put mutton busting okay <laughs> picture a dial yeah and, and mutton busting is here okay and bull riding is here okay where does this fit about dead center <laughs> About dead center, due north. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like it's it's just like a thing where like dudes that like like me, you know, I'm getting on and my into my mid forties. Okay. And my only good excuse is that man, I just miss some good old gur conflict. Got it. You know, you you can't get away with ragged on dudes in public anymore. You gotta get into a rodeo no, and get some aggression out. For that, man. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you got a boss at work. Back, you know, when I was a boy, you just went up and just beat somebody up. Me too. You felt and it's like, like it. guys. Now everybody's all touchy. You got a boss at work that's real. Uh, mm. He likes to give you his business. You know what I mean? And the guy at the gas station. You know I'm right, Zeb. The guy at the gas station <laughs> that gave you a ration of it last week. And you let it go. But you can let all that gur out in the rodeo arena. What are you laughing at, Cream? It's true. <laughs> I hear it's you, so man. true, man. So that's all you're looking for. I just and a go and a buckle. I want first place, of course. I'm a competitive dude. I want to win. Yeah. Oh. And you want there to be cold hard cash at the end you're of right. it, right? Yep. And a sweet t-shirt. And a sweet t-shirt. How did you first become aware of it? A good friend of mine from high school, and uh, they run in. We compete against them in that rodeo twice a season, and they run in other ones. And we've been buddies since, you know, high school. Mm-hmm. We got, I've seen him do it at the rodeo. And I ran into him at, out to dinner one night at a little kind of local pub, water yeah. and hole place. And I'm like, you ever get down a man? I'll jump in there. You need a man on the team. He's in the, I was like, if you get down too, I might need, I might know somebody else that's interested. He's like, y'all just start your own team. You only need one more. I'm like, you know what, Josh, good point. Yeah. And now, you know. I'm going to beat him for a buckle. I beat him this week, this last one. You did? Oh, yeah. You know that joke uh, where you say that you, you're milking a cow? My dad did this to me. <laughs> and you say, hey, did you know there's always a star on the end of a cow's teat? And you go to look, and then you whoosh, <laughs> right in the face. <laughs> no, I never got that. Uh, no. That's a good joke. Keep <laughs> in mind. That is a good joke. My old man, he had a buddy. So he had a buddy that ran – that was a, ran a dairy place and my old man would go down there and the way I remember man he'd always be coming back with that milk the non-pasteurized milk sure and like in my head I'm sure it wasn't true but in my head I remember that there was grass oh sawdust and there's like moss in there <laughs> and we, all kinds dude, of stuff we hated it man and we would call it cow's milk and he'd be like the hell you think all the other milk is you know we're like no not cow's milk yeah <laughs> And they all layered out in the fridge. Yeah. Like like I said, I remember it with like chunks of grass in there. And oh, we did not like that milk. But God, I had some of it recently at my buddy's dairy place where it's super chilled. It goes into that like, oh, it's like 33 or 32.1 degrees or whatever. Man, it is good, dude. Yeah. But when I was a little kid, I was deathly afraid of that milk. Yeah. <laughs> you ever take a big swig after that competition? <laughs> no. No, it's usually reserved for in front of the judges. But, you know. I'd be game. Yep. Yeah. You know when someone asks a question and they're sort of like acting like they're asking a hypothetical question, but you realize they're actually asking a question? Yeah. It'd be like one of those questions. It's like, um, let's just say 
Okay, this guy writes in this big long letter about um recovering a correct me if I get some of this wrong. I'm trying it's a long letter. Basically a doe gets killed and they wind up with a fawn. Mm-hmm. And say also that his wife is producing some someone in the family is producing way more milk than their kid can drink. Like I remember when my wife, she'd she'd have so much, she'd be feeding the baby and filling the freezer with frozen bags of milk. Yeah. So he's like, let's just say, um, would that be good milk for that baby fawn? Right? Am I getting this more or less correct? Indeed. You lost me. His wife's milk? Huh? Oh, okay. Now you got me back. Yeah. And I don't know what to write to him. Uh, <laughs> colostrum. We haven't replied. Scroll down. Oh. Because we have an answer. Or not a real answer. Oh, Heffelfinger weighed in on it. Oh, he's the man for the question. You know, this just came up, and I'm going to bring it up again. Heffelfinger brought up a great point, and I I, I feel like raising it twice, because how throughout your entire life you have been told, if you touch a fawn, its mother will abandon it. Like, how many times have you heard that growing up? Including birds, too? You were always told to never touch birds, either. Heffelfinger brings up a great point where he's like, Heffelfinger's like, all the collaring research that is done on fawns, right? They net them, tranquilize them, whatever, handle them, draw blood, weigh them. Um, If what you've been told your whole life was true, all of that would be in vain. Because those fawns would all be dead, but they're not. Mm, that's a good point. When you go to a bear den and they work up bears in a bear den, sure. what are they doing? Handling all of them, everything. They got them inside their coat. Yeah. I see where they got them in their coat to warm them up. But then on the same hand, you're told your whole life, the minute you touch it, it will be abandoned. Um. Heffelfinger's first point. The doe wasn't dead. Heffelfinger's first point. The fawn is not abandoned. 100%, 100% sure of that. Does spend almost zero time within sight of the fawn. Only to nurse, and then they leave them for many more hours. My son had a newborn, newborn fawn in his yard last week against the backyard fence in Texas, and my brother did the week before in Wisconsin. It happens all the time, and they are not abandoned. Stepping away from Heffelfinger for a minute to remind bear hunters of something. Uh, um, I have watched like almost anywhere you go, pretty much anywhere you go, anywhere you go in the lower 48, anywhere you go on 80s, I don't know, 90% of Alaska. You're not allowed, during black bear season, you're, allowed, you're not allowed to kill a sow with cubs. Most people, and, and granted, you don't get a lot of opportunities, most people sight check it. They're like, is it got a cub? Nope. But likewise, in the early spring, on their first, so those babies are born, right? They're born in February, January, and they come out. And that early spring when they come out, she probably has that thing hidden. I have watched sows have a have on an avalanche slide, I've watched sows put their cubs in the brush and go out and feed in that avalanche slide for 30 minutes and go back back in and check on that cub and go back out into the avalanche slide and you would if you were just watching her you would be like oh she doesn't have a cub really well there's your argument for bear baiting right there there you go 
Look at that. Look how he's leveraging this for political purposes. <laughs> Mate, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we, we want to protect that in this state. So yeah. yeah. Is it at risk? I think it's at risk everywhere. Sure it is. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You ever uh, get Clay Newcomb started oh, on that yeah. subject? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. Last year at, uh, yeah, big time. I was talking to Clay this week about bear hunting. We, sh- we shot a bear on Wednesday and couldn't find it. Uh, I heard a death moan uh, right before dark, and I could not find it. And messaged him. He's like, oh, yeah, that bear's dead somewhere right in the timber. And got in there that morning with the dog and found it right away. Oh, so, great. Yeah, it's cool. Still good? It's good. Yeah. Back to Heffelfinger. The notion that human scent will cause the mother to abandon it is an old wives' tale perpetuated by biologists to keep people from touching newborn fawns. Researchers handle fawns all the time, and although they use gloves to minimize scent transfer, the mother does not abandon the fawns. The farmer anecdote is more proof of that. Maternal instinct is strong. Number three. Ready, Tommy? I'm ready. Human breast milk is better than whole milk from a cow. But again, see number one above. Don't touch the fawn. I'm sure a fawn would gain weight nicely on human breast milk, but a better use for all that breast milk is to soak dove breasts in it before wrapping and baking and grilling. (laughs) He says, that's why they call it breast milk. (laughs) I like Jim. Oh, dude, he's the funniest guy in the world, man. He's the funniest guy in the world. If you've learned anything after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, it's this. There's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, no way, can't be true. But there isn't a catch. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get premium wireless service for just 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Hey, I'm kind of an afternoon hydrator. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and drink a bunch of coffee. Then later in the day, I'm like, man, I got to hydrate. And then uh, I'll see some liquid IV, and then I'll drink a whole bunch because I like it a lot. It helps me stay hydrated because it motivates me to do it. Now, it doesn't matter if you like hydrate to live or live to hydrate. Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks. And no artificial sweeteners, plus zero sugar in the sugar-free version. However you hydrate, grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco. Or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use our code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Superior Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER. 
at liquidiv.com. I spend a lot of time outside, and I spend a lot of time hydrating with Liquid IV because, like I said, I love it, and it makes me drink like I know I should. It makes me feel great. Check it out, liquidiv.com. Meal prepping and thinking about what's for dinner all the time can be a real stressor. Well, using ButcherBox helps relieve that stress. With ButcherBox, you're always prepared with good quality meat in the freezer. It's the ultimate convenience with custom curated boxes shipped right to your door with free shipping, which means fewer trips to the grocery store. It's hard to find the same value at the store because what store can you go to where you're going to get free protein for a whole year alongside your order? Plus, they have a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value with exclusive member deals, and they make it even easier on you with recipe inspiration, guides, tips, and hacks. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner. ButcherBox is offering our listeners their choice of weeknight meal essentials. Three pounds of chicken thighs, two pounds of ground beef, or one pound of premium steak tips for free in every order for a whole year. Plus, you get $20 off your first order. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash meat eater and use code meat eater to choose your free offer and get $20 off. So, uh, anything more you'd like to add about your about about, about your competition? Because I got another question I want to pursue with you. Huh? We're coming for buckles in September. Are you? Oh yeah, me and the rest of and the rest of the team, Joey, Steve, Mabry, we're coming. And uh, what's the buckle say on it? Usually, I think they say shoot cow milker or champion. Champion. Yeah. Like, yeah. but you rest your rest oh, your yeah. arm on that. Buckle. Oh yeah. And then my, here's my other question for you. While I got you here. Um, can you give me give me a layman like a like a like a Joe Blow, uh, like a Joe Blow Washington perspective on what's going on with the with with the with your guys game commission in Washington? Funny you ask. Because um, can I can I can I give you further endorsements? Please, please. Tommy is the kind of hunter and fisherman who, instead of just sitting around complaining, follows and is involved in his. Follows and isn't involved in his state's wildlife management. Yeah, you keep yourself educated I, I, as most as best I can. Um, you said it best when you said layman's because like I don't. There's a lot. I'm very trusting, and that's probably a problem given the cur- current state of our commission. Our commission has been a lot of guys that use the word compromised, and a lot of guys use the words infiltrated. But there's definitely some red flags going up mm-hmm. about what's going on in our commission. It you all, guys have a governor-appointed game commission mm-hmm. of how many folk? Nine folks. Okay, of nine mm-hmm. folk. That way there can never be a split, you know. Typically it's X amount or it's so many from the eastern side of the state and typically and so many from the western side of the state. I think that is that way because the western side of the state tends to be stand in a different place than the eastern side of the state as far as politics. Yep. And it makes it, in, in the past, it's made Here's a good way balance. to remember it. If you looked at it on a map and you imagine it split apart and the parts fell, the side right. that would fall to the right Correct. leans to the right. That's right. Yeah. That's a great way to remember. I'm never going to forget that. That is a good way to look. That is the good side that falls to the left? Right. Okay. But there's uh there's some serious like red flags and question marks being raised. 
in Washington's game commission as far as decision-making, totally ignoring the biologists that are paid to do the studies they do, to find out, to come to the facts we do. We lost our spring bear season. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, like, we don't... And it's because interest groups, people that love animals, don't want other people that love animals killing animals. Yeah. Is basically what it's come down and to. The approach they've taken is historically those game commissions have been populated by people with skin in the game. I don't mean that. I don't even know if that's a pun. I think I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, people from fisheries, sure. outfitters, right? Right. It's been people Guides, who have generally sure. like who generally have it, it's been people who come from varying perspectives that would be in support of the general idea of the North American model of wildlife conservation, meaning that we have a renewable resource that's like that wildlife is a citizen owned renewable resource held in trust by um an agency that assesses and allocates the resource in a democratic fashion with an eye toward people utilizing it but not damaging it in the long term. Right. And the new trend there is to be like, well, there should be people on the game commission who are opposed to hunting. There should be animal rights people on the game commission. There should be zookeepers on the game commission. Correct. Correct. And where we're at now is that there's a new draft policy, and I think there's some litigation that's been done or taking action against them for the for in as a rebuttal to this to completely like basically rewrite the goal for department of fish and wildlife's commission Mm -hmm. in and of itself it's unfortunate and look i'm not the best at when it comes to complaining about things i'm just not i'll just find a way to do what i want to do in a in a manner but so maybe i'm not the best spokesman it's unfortunate that now we don't have the luxury as sportsmen in washington to sit around on our laurels and just complain about it Mm -hmm. because i as soon as i hear it from somebody that i know for a fact has never sent an email to the commission has never you know done the homework or cited a study that it adds to the fact that we're trying to work under the North American Battle of Wildlife Management. Why are we going away from this? Yep. Because that's what we're doing. I shut down and we're done. We don't have the luxury of it anymore. We have to be involved in Washington. We all have to. Yeah. And there's no more finger pointing. All oh, the tribes took them all or all oh, the fly fishermen are getting the best water. <laughs> we all have to get enough of that shit. We all got to come together. Mm-hmm. That's enough of it, you know. Well, I've talked a bunch. Like I'm a believer in slip. I'm a believer in slippery slopes. A lot of people aren't, but I think there are. Like I think I think wildlife management that 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 there is a slippery slope. There's a playbook that it goes by. Um, you're generally going to go after. Like if you go and pull, there, there's some recent polling stuff. Rec- uh, recently, some polling data that if you phrase it a certain way. Um, over 80% of Americans support regulated, it, depending on how you phrase it, you can get over 80% of Americans, or maybe it's 78 right now, support regulated hunting and fishing. The minute you put specificity, it goes down. So I say to you, do you, do you support scientific-based regulated hunting and fishing? You'd be like, well, of course. And I'd be like, do you support someone using a dog to hunt? Oh, well, I don't know about that. Right. right. 
Do you support right. them using a gun? You know, I don't know about that, right? So it starts, the, the specifics peel away, right? The playbook in attacking hunting and fishing is to peel out the, the, to peel out the easy parts. Meaning you would never go, you would never start a group that, you would never start a group that was out in front of Whole Foods collecting signatures to ban hunting and fishing in Washington State. That'd be a fool's errand. Instead, you'd go and be like, okay, we're going to go after spring bear season because there's the issue of cubs. We're going to go after using dogs because there's a, a, a com- in my view, completely like completely bogus argument of fair chase. We're going to go after, um, and then it'll be anything with dogs. Uh, we're going to go after steel traps followed by cona bears and snares. We're going to go, right? And you, you yeah. slowly dismantle it. Sure, it's death by a thousand But if you, if you understood, if you went and looked at what the people driving that's private conversations are, their private conversations aren't that they have a problem with the particulars. The private conversation is that they have a problem with the whole thing, but this is the most productive way to go mm. after it. I think too many people, um, I think too many people that would, that would articulate a support for hunters and anglers would, would think that they're never going to get that as they whittle away, they're never going to get to the stuff I like. Right. I mean, you're like an upland bird hunter. You'd be saying to yourself, oh yeah, but like, they're never going to like come around for me, you know? So I'm not going to get involved because they're never going to get to me. That's exactly true. Yeah. People think that way. Yeah. yeah but I think I mean. that if you look at, I think that if you do a case study of some issues in Washington, you do a case study of some issues in California. I think that most anybody that does any extractive use of renewable natural resources, like wildlife resources, would at some point be like, man, I probably should start paying attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, Monday mornings have become my mornings for what I call hate mail. It's not because I'm sending off nasty messages. It's because I hate the fact that I have to sit down and spend 20 minutes on my Monday mornings sending off these emails to these wildlife commissions about this topic. The only thing we can do, man, is just get involved. We, you have to send off the – you have to do it. We have to do it in Washington anymore because they're going to come. I mean, predators are up next. Commissioner Baker has talked about it. I hate the name drop, but it's true. Has talked about wanting to do away with coyote hunting. Mm-hmm. I mean, back last spring when we were having the spring bear dis- discussion, they wanted to do away with any and all spring hunting. Yeah, and then turkeys. Yeah, like do you not? And then when that was brought up, that I'm not going to name who in question brought that up, but they didn't even know turkeys were hunted in the spring. That's how far out of a square we have. We're trying to fit a square through a round hole in the block box. Yeah, these people. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's just... What's, the, what's your guys' governor's stance been on this? He's pretty silent on it. And he's Is the he? one to put... Yeah, as best I can understand. I think he's included in the litigation. I don't know. It's a... Uh, you know, like in the Constitution, they say, like, the, the rules to be president? Like, you got to be, whatever, 40. Sure. Yeah. You got to be born here and all Born that. in America. Yeah. They should be that you got to hunt and fish. I agree. If Just you're going to make rules on it, you should man. have to do it. Yeah, then you wouldn't, have to worry about, you wouldn't have to worry about all this garbage. I agree. Um, thank you, Tommy. You're welcome. You got anything more you want to add? 
How much money could you win at the if you did the best? If you did like, what's the possible winnings for the next rodeo? Best? Yeah. How much money was in that envelope you already sent me? I'm not gonna say. <laughs> More than 150 bucks, less than 300 bucks. So when it's all said and done, will we have made money or lost money? You'll <laughs> make money. You'll make a little money. Good. Man. I uh, I, I think don't the, want any kind of pencil pushers. No, no, no. The very high end money. of it. I think the very high end of it. I think we're looking at at least 600 bucks. Oh, it's a, du- it's a two day thing. You're going to have people lining up to invest in you, man. Good. If it's 300 to get Send in, on, you can buddy. double your money. You can't do that on the stock I market. Didn't, I gave you that offer. That offer doesn't stand for everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Sponsorship changes. I might start keeping some of the money. We'll see. All right. Tommy, stay tuned because you're going to have a lot to say about this big, the, uh, about this question. Uh, Zeb Hogan, host of Nat Geo's Monster Fish, author of Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish. And United Nations Convention on Migratory Species Scientific Counselor for Fish. Who came up with that title? Did you make that title up? No, they they did. It's a hell of a title. You would be the U-N-C-O-M-S-S-C-F-F. Yeah, that's the only United Nations group I've ever been involved with, but there are a lot of names like that. Yeah, got it. So what, uh, I know know you can't answer this. We can't answer this, but... If I come to you and I say, hey, man, what is the world's biggest freshwater fish? Tell me all of the hemming and hawing that needs to go into that answer. Yeah, so that's how this all started. Yeah. I, I was working in Thailand 2005, did my PhD there. Working on what? On uh, oh. migratory fish, migratory okay. catfish of the Mekong River. Yeah, looking at the impact of dams on, on migratory fish. Most fish are migratory in the Mekong, so they're migrating like like salmon. And so so I, they're they're moving for what purpose? For spawning. Yeah. Okay. And also, so the Mekong, there's a huge flood pulse, so water comes up, uh, increases tenfold in the rainy season from the dry season. Oh. And I the fish you. they spawn. Uh, sturgeon will do the same thing, but they'll spawn during the floods, and all those fish get dispersed downstream. They spawn up high. Yeah, they spawn, not not necessarily in headwaters, but like in this upstream spawning areas. Got it. And then the fish all go in the floodplain. Uh, tributaries or in the Mekong River? In the Mekong. Or okay. there's like a thousand species of fish in the Mekong. So they... Are they really? Yeah. So they do everything, but like a couple hundred... The river's got a thousand species of fish. Yeah. So more more species in the Mekong than there are in the United States. What? Yeah. It's the second most diverse. The Amazon has over 4,000 species. Huh. That's unbelievable, yeah. man. Tropical tropical big tropical rivers yeah. have a lot of different kinds of fish and a lot of big fish okay so that's how i got involved i was doing my phd there working with local fishermen the fishermen that i was working with caught a 646 pound catfish and you saw and, it uh i saw this is how i first got involved so when i was doing my phd in 1997 i saw a fisherman catch one of those fish for the first time and i at, i had no idea that fish got that big in freshwater. Like you see something that big, 400, 500 pounds. The one I saw was like 500 pounds. I, I've seen many since then, but the first one I saw was big. And, I, and this I, is hook and line or a net? Net. Okay. Yeah. And so that's... So that's just making a mess out of that net. It's a big net. Oh, it's, it is? It's just the mesh is like that. It's just oh, only, so they're it's after big fish. only designed for that fish. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's a traditional, they've been fishing that way forever. It's a, only during that few weeks, only using that kind of net, 
Got it. Specifically, look catching. That, and they're that after fish. hogs. They're after giants. Yeah, and there's a ceremony associated with it. Uh, really? Yeah. Chicken. And they're doing it for commercial purposes. Like they're yeah, selling fish. They sell it. Yeah. But it, they only catch. I mean, the whole time I've been working with them, they probably caught ten of them. <laughs> so okay. it's not. It's not like you're not gonna make got a lot it. of money. Got it. Got it. Uh. So the first time I saw it was in 1997. This is right up in the Golden Triangle area, right where Thailand, Laos, and Myanmar meet. So way up in the northern part of Thailand. First time I saw the fish was 97. That's when I realized these things were out there, got interested, started doing my PhD. And then in 2005, the same club, like the same group of fishermen caught the 646-pound fish. And so that's when I just asked the question that you've been asking, which is, is this the world's largest freshwater fish? And how impressed were they by that fish? They didn't. They didn't realize it was the world's largest fish. But I mean, were they were they were they saying to themselves, uh, "No, this is the biggest one we've ever heard of," or they're like, "Oh, that's kind of what they're like." That's kind of no. So the guys who caught it, it's a team, uh, five guys, and they were on their they were students uh, on their summer break, uh -huh. like young young guys, and they borrowed their uncle's boat went out, you take turns. So it's, there's like one lane where you can drop the net and the fishermen take turns. It's a floating net. So you drop it, it floats down for like a kilometer. If you don't catch anything, you pull it back in, the next guy goes, next yep. group goes, next group goes. So these guys were young kids like on their summer break from school and they happen to catch this fish. And so the club had been keeping records of how big the fish were that they caught all the way back to like 1980. Okay. And so I just went back and looked at those records. I said, this is the biggest one they've ever caught. I got you. They didn't, to them, I mean, it was a big fish, but you know, they're all four or five, 600 pounds. Yeah, I'm with you. And so they didn't realize. And so I sort of said, hey, is this the world's largest freshwater fish? Like, is that, like you were asking, is this specific fish the, the world's the largest The biggest freshwater. freshwater fish that's ever been caught. I got you. And so you mentioned earlier, like the definitions. There's only one, for for all of this work, there's only one definition or only one criteria, which is the fish has to spend its whole life in freshwater. Yeah, but but I, I don't know how fair that is. That's kind of one of, the, mm. one of the main reasons I wanted to ask you about it. So let me get, can I throw you with a for instance? Sure. Okay. When we were, uh, when we were doing our, fishing game cookbook we had the fish broken out saltwater freshwater and it came up with the question of salmon right and we debated back and forth uh is it, is it freshwater saltwater my brother danny studies salmon at the u.s fish and wildlife service i said hey man what do you think about a salmon is it freshwater or saltwater and he said you know it spends the bulk of its life in saltwater but it's born and it <laughs> dies in fresh water. So if I had to put it somewhere, I would put it like like those key that like key moment. But, so why, goes, but why? I would put the salmon in the freshwater section, which is what we did. By God. <laughs> <laughs> but why do you? Why do you have to choose? Why do you have to pick? Because the, the, the cookbook's only we didn't want to make a <laughs> we didn't want to make a category that had like bull sharks, salmon, <laughs> and striped bass, or I don't know whatever yeah. the hell you know, American well, eels. Yeah. So this like the criteria is just it's just for the I'm a research professor at the okay. University of Nevada Reno. So I'm, yeah, a, I'm you a, guys like to you guys like to no, obfuscate. No, but it's not. Split it's, hairs it's, more than it's anybody not, in the world. It's not splitting hairs. 
the, it, it's a simple criteria. It, that fish, that particular fish has had to be spent its whole life in fresh water. That's the only criteria. Okay. How do you know one of them? I, I want to move on from this, but how do you know <laughs> that one of them big ass cats didn't one day go down and get into brackish water? Yeah. Well, that's what we, that's what we, that, that's what we study. Okay. And yeah. what happened? They don't. Oh, all right. There you go. <laughs> Corinne, I think the interview's over early. <laughs> they just don't. They don't like brackish water. Some fish do, but, the, you know, the the point or the sort of the work that I do yeah. and the point of the, asking the question was that if you, if you just ask, okay, what's the biggest freshwater fish? Then you have white sturgeon, beluga, beluga sturgeon in Europe that can get like 3,000 pounds. So a f- what's the Great Lakes sturgeon? Lake sturgeon. That they just not contenders. They don't get big enough, but okay. But they only freshwater. Yeah. Okay. So they there's would actually count, they po- would count for you. So Kootenai River in northern Idaho has a population of white sturgeon that does not go down to the ocean. So does the Snake River. Yeah, because of the dams. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, that's another. That's another. So there, but there are some sturgeon that choose not to go to. It's just their ecology. Okay. Yeah. 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 And so one of those could be a contender, or do you have to not because the species will go to saltwater? No, just the fit, just the fish. Yeah, you're interested in the yeah. individual fish, but as a way to learn about all these fish, like the the reason why this is an interesting question. Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was asking when I said, "Hey, is yeah. this the world's largest freshwater fish?" What makes it interesting is we don't know. Yeah, and we don't know anything about these fish. So there are probably forty species of fish that get over six feet long or weigh more than 200 pounds in freshwater okay. in the world. out of, And there are over 15,000 freshwater fish. So you're talking like just a small number of fish that hit, get hit, that big. Hit me, with, hit me in North America. Hit me with what we got. Alligator gar, white, uh, white sturgeon. I'm sorry. Also, back up on the parameter. Oh. What, what, what is it, six feet in length and what was the weight? Over, or over 200 pounds. So, so it can or, be, it can okay, be long I got skinny. You. So or, either six feet yeah, long or over or 200 pounds, yeah. and we got... Go ahead, alligator gar. Alligator gar, Mississippi American paddlefish, uh, white certain populations of white sturgeon, lake sturgeon. Okay. Some people say Colorado pike minnow used to get that big. They don't really anymore, but that's they a, did? North America's largest minnow. What and about they, blue cats? Blue cat, blue cats, and flathead get up to about 100. Uh, what's the record these days? I think the record is about 150 pounds. So they don't so break. They, they don't, don't break 200 mark. Big. But you read like old, like Mark Twain, or you read old accounts from the 1800s. There are accounts of catfish that big. You don't know whether you don't know. Yeah, what like to believe. Huck Finn looking yeah. at it there, <laughs> laying there, and he says it's 200 pounds. Yeah. What about what about the old tales about guys in the 1800s dragging white sturgeon yeah. out of the Columbia with teams of oh, horses? Oh yeah, yeah, that, that's true. As far that's as I true? know, yeah, really. I mean, sturgeon, white sturgeon. 15 feet I but mean, those they, are saltwater fish though they're fish that don't spend their whole lives with freshwater yeah they're 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 an anadromous fish they move back and forth yeah. there's lot there are lots of fish like that but the ones that move back and forth they they can get bigger because they typically when fish are out in the ocean generally they have access to more food and stuff got it they're able to utilize marine resources and yeah, yeah okay yeah. so go on on the numbers oh so yeah so it's just a small number uh, 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 uh I think that's it. So, I mean, there's... Oh, I thought there was 15. There, there are uh, like 30 or 40 big fish all over the world. Okay. And there's, we have, in the U.S., we have five or, five or six. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant we had get, 15 that, in the, in the that, U.S. That get really big. Oh, yeah. so just a small little collection. Yeah. Yeah. Let me... Um, ha- 
I, I just there's the thing I can't move on from because I just want to understand it. You know when you hear a crazy story, and you probably know this better. Um, then some bull shark go way the hell up the. Uh, how far did the bull shark go up the Mississippi? It's not like I, Illinois. I had a book when I was a kid that had them in the Great Lakes. I think they're. I, I don't want I. I don't want to say something that's not true, but the book I had when I was little said that they made it all the way up to the Great So they'll Lakes. go way up. They but will, is, but that's, is there a thing like that's unusual? Physi- yeah, no, very unusual, yeah. right? But I'm just, it's a physiology question. Yeah. Um, if you look at a, a, a shark that, that can go and spend, like where an in, like at least an individual can go and spend presumably months in fresh water, uh, physiologically, like, could two of them go what why can't two of them go up and reproduce in fresh water or, or is it or is it open that they maybe could or like, like like what what winds up happening to them bull sharks as far as i know don't breed in fresh water so okay. it is physiological but i don't know why that is they're they're very adaptable they can live in salt water they can live in fresh water they don't breed in fresh water as far as i know well so, yeah there has to be some barrier because they're there's not reproducing populations of them up in the Great Lakes, or whatever. Yeah, 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 or, yeah or wherever yeah. the hell, right? So there's yeah. some like reason why it doesn't work, but it's that's not well understood. No, but you have another. So three of the largest freshwater fish are freshwater stingrays, which are related to sharks. And the species that I study the most is a, a species in Southeast Asia, get over 600 pounds, freshwater stingray, and it breeds in freshwater, so it it's Got able it. to do that. Every 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 fish is different. Yep. And the fact that you can take, this has always puzzled me as well, is that you can take um, striped bass, which are, right, it's an anadromous fish, spend a lot of time in brackish water, can spawn in purely fresh water, but then you can take them one day and throw them into some reservoir, and they don't even change tune, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, some fish have the ability to... Yeah, yeah. it's just, just, I don't know, it's hard to understand how that could be right. Yeah, yeah. We right. have in. I live in Nevada right now. We have Lahant cutthroat trout. They can live in brackish water, and so that's actually like they they get really big in Pyramid Lake near where I, near Reno, and that's actually what's one of the things that's kept them in that lake is that like we invasive species haven't been able to get in the lake because it's brackish. Got it. So, so they're like rainbows, browns in the river that flows into the pyramid, but they can't survive in the brackish water. Rainbows oh, so that's how they get it for themselves. Yeah. Oh, no yeah. kidding. So okay. It works to some fish's advantage. All right, so pick it back up. I can't remember where I left you. <laughs> the hell's the biggest yeah, fish? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so the book, it starts with the catch of the world record fish. And so what I've been working on for the last 20 years is just trying to travel all around the world, gather as much information as possible about these big fish. Because like you said, like 70% of them are in danger with extinction yep. so if some of them are like all the the mekong species are basically on the brink of extinction really yeah and so my where kind of where i my background is working in southeast asia mekong has like seven or eight really big species of freshwater fish and then mongolia which has the world's largest trout species yeah what's that fish called Taiman. yeah yeah um is the arapaima Arapaima's one, yeah. yeah, That's yeah. one of them. Yeah. So it's a, it's like a diverse assemblage of fish. Air, air-breathing Arapaima, you know, in South America. Sure. South America has short-tailed stingray, which get up to like 500 pounds. So one of like, you pr- most people never heard of short-tailed river ray, 
but that's like no, one I've the, seen that's one of the fish, biggest yeah. fish right, out, I've out seen there. the, 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 the fr in South America I've seen a bunch of the big ass freshwater yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and then big catfish that can get up to like four or five hundred pounds that migrate from the foothills of the Andes and then they'll migrate all the way down to the Amazon estuary and all the way back just like seven several thousand kilometers yeah does the Cerubi catfish get up to 200 yeah 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 uh-huh yeah, yeah. like in Argentina yeah. or they're all over actually yeah. but yeah they'll get that big cool fish and uh how many does the mekong have to get that that, that hit so, the criteria like seven or eight so giant freshwater stingray smokes yeah wow. giant catfish chow praia catfish seven striped barb wallago catfish a lot of them are catfish big carp the world's largest carp species which can get up to 10 feet long no it's, yeah <laughs> what like what makes that river so productive like what makes it so special it's a, it's a big river we no one no one really knows because they should if it just went by numbers of fish then the amazon should have more but for whatever reason, the Mekong has the most. And it's like super productive. There's a giant lake in the Mekong called the Tonle Sap Lake, mm -hmm. which is a huge, like, you know, one of our great lakes, but it's in the dry season, like two meters deep. So it's basically just a big flooded area that the fish all move into in the rainy season and feed and get big. And then they move back out to the river in the dry season. Got it. So... No one knows for sure. Tropical, big tropical rivers with lots of different kinds of fish. You'd expect to have big fish too. Yeah, yeah. So does had have had you uncovered since that work? Have you uncovered one that top six forty six that hits the definition? Yeah, really. Yeah. So the book ends with the catch in two thousand five, or no, starts with the catch in two thousand five, and then ends with the new record breaker. And what is that? Giant freshwater stingray. So, oh yeah, 661 pounds oh barely yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean it's like, and where did it come out of out of in cambodia yeah and the cool my favorite part of that story is that in 2005 the catfish was that giant catfish was uh killed you know fair enough but critically endangered species so that catfish was killed and sold for meat uh we were working in thailand or in cambodia this last year and working with the fishermen and we made a deal with them that, hey, we want to tag this fish for research. And so when they caught it, they gave us a call. We went out, we're able to tag it, and we we like are falling around right now. So we oh. know, so we know where it is. So I want to, oh, I want to cool. back, I want to back up on that that catfish. Uh, in what form are they selling it? They're butchering it and just selling by the pound. I mean, not the pound, but you know what I mean, like by yeah, portions. Yeah, in Thailand, for whatever reason. To back up a little bit, like in Thailand, the the meat is very prized and it's said to have certain qualities, long life, or I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Um, on those big catfish specifically? Yeah. Have you eaten them? Yeah. Are they good? Tastes like catfish. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, yeah. yeah, they're good. I mean, okay. most, yeah. But I, he can't tell. I, someone told me it was actually like a tourism thing. Like mm. it wasn't actually like a real traditional belief that it was some part of a tourism God, campaign God. or something. I don't know. Yeah. I see that. <clears throat> but in any way, in Thailand, it's very expensive. So like we were working with fishermen up there. We tagged, we did tag a few fish up there. One fish would sell for like 2000 bucks, which, you know, that's in like 1990s. So that's a lot of money. It felt like a lot oh, of money at the, the time. The equivalent of 2000 US dollars. Yeah. Wow. It was like 20, 30 bucks a kilo or something or yeah. Just as, as fillets. Yeah. 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 So it would be butchered wow. and then sold a lot of times to restaurants or, you know, they'd even send it to restaurants like in Bangkok or no like not local restaurants. 
and it but and and the people buying it are they care what it is yeah that's why it's worth so much i got yeah. it it's not just like generic fish it's yeah. like the big ass crazy catfish yeah but yeah. in cambodia so this is i actually kind of shifted work to cambodia because in cambodia it's doesn't have any special significance and in fact people don't like it so in cambodia it was 50 cents a kilo Wow. So, and, and what I was huh. doing is I was, I was working with the fishermen. I would compensate them for the fish, whatever they could get market rate and then tag it and release it so we could follow it. Oh really? You'd, so you'd buy it off them? Yeah. Yeah. So, but in Cambodia I could do that, but in Thailand it was you'd too expensive. Bur you'd burn your budget. Yeah. So. And then, uh, how much are those fish moving? They, uh, migrate at least six, 700 kilometers. I mean, they're making big, big migrations. They'll move out of that big lake down into the Mekong and then way up into the Mekong. Huh. Are they spawning way up in the Mekong in finer water? Yeah, 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 yeah. So oh, they'll find like that. It seems like they like rocky, like they the Tony Sap and the Lower Mekong is all kind of silty, uh, and they seems like they go up in these deep pools. The Mekong mm. can be up to two hundred fifty feet deep, so really deep, and uh, it seems like they like those deep pool areas. Oh, say that again. Two hundred fifty feet deep. Yeah. The Mekong River. Yeah. They am so the Congo is over seven hundred feet deep. So some that of these rivers, yeah, really? no, it's definitely true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but the, the, the I don't, I don't, yeah. yeah, but the make the make the cool thing about the Mekong, I didn't even appreciate this. We we start, started doing some filming in these deep pools last year, yeah. so we'd send cam cameras down. You get down like ten feet or like twenty feet, it's completely dark because the water's silty. Yeah, yeah. So you get down like we tried scuba diving. That freaked me out. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, y'all, I always, you know, I'm always seeing the fish at the surface and even when we're doing our research and stuff, we, we're always seeing these fish, like they live in a, in the total darkness. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I just, I just didn't, no, it's that, didn't that didn't compute man. to me it's before crazy. we actually sent cameras down. We're like, oh man, it's and the fish are down there, like doing their thing. It's, smelling and feeling. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Can't see squat. Uh -uh. You ever, uh. I'm guessing you never tried to uh, noodle one of them big sons of bitches. Huh? <laughs> so we, we, well, we noodle. He <laughs> <laughs> had a handful well, in, dude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> have you ever done that? No. I so I did it, like not in the not in the Mekong, but in in the U.S. Uh -huh. And it's actually like I I it's a, like a real um, rodeo. Yeah, like it's no. So I, I I didn't. I just went out with people who knew how to do it. Yeah. But like you dive down, you do it's teams, teams, t three person teams. A lot yeah, of times. There you go. And you dive down and the fish grunt. They make a noise when you get close to them. So that's, and you can't see anything. And so the fish grunt and you know, like usually they're under a rock or something and the people you get around it. And then one person agrees to stick their hand in the, in the fish's mouth. Mm -hmm. And then you just pull it out. But it's like a real, I mean, talking about wild cow milking, like yep. it's like noodling. It's like a real sure it's a real thing yeah, I, it yeah. looks it looks funny but it but, it, but it's those, not but that's not practiced in uh there's no version of that that you found in in, in no Econ. no a lot for most catfish the easiest place to grab them is on the mouth so even in the mekong like when we handle the fish we just grab its like its lip you yep. the mekong giant catfish doesn't have any teeth the wells catfish in europe that's europe's largest freshwater fish it does have kind of teeth and we also grab it by the mouth, but you'll get your, you'll get your shred. Yo. Yeah. Hey everybody. I'm talking here about Montana knife company from our very own state of Montana. 
This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. On X Hunt is always striving to help make hunters more successful in the field each season. This hunting season, they will have a bunch of new features to help you on your next hunt. These features include new aerial imagery options like leaf off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back, and imagery on demand. On top of that, OnX is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates OnX has for this hunting season. Try OnX Hunt free for seven days or go to onxmaps.com slash hunt and use code MEATEATER for 20% off your new OnX Hunt membership. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the app I use most. I love it. I cannot picture life without it. Use code MEATEATER for 20% off on your new OnX Hunt membership. Make life insurance part of your financial planning this year. Start shopping now with Policy Genius to find the right policy to protect your family. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind so that if something were to happen to you, your family can cover expenses while getting back on their feet. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Why do they want that big do they do they butcher those big stingrays or is that just bycatch? Every in in the Mekong Amazon's a little bit different. In the Mekong everything is eaten. Okay. So, it doesn't like there's nothing that they catch that 
that that they don't eat. So, um, yeah. So the stingray will would be butchered. The the crazy thing about the stingray is that, like big, and this is just human part of it's like human nature. These big fish, people seem to have a reverence for, even mm -hmm. if it's not like religious. You you're around a fish that big, and it's just it's pretty special, and so even though it's not illegal to catch the stingray, people will usually keep it pretty quiet yep. and like uh, everything, like catch it at night, it gets butchered and you see it in the market the next morning, but you don't actually, it's actually, it was really hard to get information about that fish. Got it. Like there's to, a sort of tacit acknowledgement that it's like, you probably shouldn't have cut that one up. Yeah. But like for our, for my, I mean, for my work, I get it. I, I, we, I work pretty much exclusively with, with fishermen yep. who are fishing for food. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons we compensate the fishermen is because otherwise, why would they, why would they want to work with us? You know, um, in Guyana, they like, there was, there's red, red tail catfish. Yeah, red okay. tails, yeah. Um, a couple times when I've been down there, like they'll, they'll kill that one and cook it. Yeah. The cerubis they'll kill and cook. But then there's one I wish you, you probably you might know the name of it. There's a big dark one they call Toro. Jao. It's like a yeah, that's yeah, it. Jao. Right. I forgot yeah. the other name. There's they thought maybe I would know it as Toro, which is like the like a from Spanish infusion. Um yeah, Jao. Mm -hmm. Uh they don't kill that one. Yeah, they're like they, these like they when we hooked one of those, they it was just kind of eh, nah, nah, nah. Yeah, those are cool fish. They're, they didn't want that one killed. Yeah, huh. They're they're like more rare. Yeah. So maybe there's, you know, there's, no, it was just kind of like, you know, we had all kinds of other fish. Yeah. They were just yeah. sort of like, no, 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 no that, that's not one to, I mean, this oh. thing was enormous. Yeah. I mean, maybe they don't taste good. Uh, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. They just kind of had a different, a different, you yeah. know, like there's like a language barrier, so you can't really establish what it is, but there was a, that, that was something. Th yeah. Special. It was kind of like, like the same way. Um, I don't want, I don't want to use the word taboo. There's just things that would seem edible that they don't eat the same way if you were walking around here and someone's like, why are you not eating that dog? Be like, I mean, I don't know, how do I even explain why we're not eating that dog? Yeah. You know, but this big ass catfish, that's just not. Yeah. Well, it's, and you bring it up, like in Cambodia, there's the same feeling. So people feel like if they kill a giant catfish, and it's a Mekong giant catfish, it's one species, mm. there's a belief that if they kill it, they'll um, get bad luck. And like, it, it kind of is self fulfilling. I've seen it a lot of times. Someone will catch one, and then within like a week, they'll have a death in the family. Oh. Or something really bad will happen. And it's hard, you know, it's, it doesn't seem like it would really be actual bad luck, but they always associate if they actually do keep one of those fish, Sure, they always find something. You're inviting trouble. Yeah, yep. and they like recognize that. And so we've actually started to see the fishermen in Cambodia, just with that one species, they'll release them on their own. So what, like, what could you say is true? Is it always a different culprit? Or, or if globally we're imperiling or, or globally we're, we're damaging and potentially losing giant freshwater fish, is it just like a different enemy in every ecosystem or is there, are, are there general truths? It's mainly dams. Really? So, yeah. That, because like overfishing, overfishing very rarely causes extinctions. So it'll it, you could get the population down really low, but with fish at least, it's very rare that you could like catch the last ones. 
Yeah. It's just hard, like these big systems. So fishing is usually not the culprit in terms of extinction. It's yeah. usually something that changes. They the, can, it can drive scarcity, but yeah. it doesn't drive. Like the disappearance. Yeah. And yeah. so like with, with dams, they're, it's blocking sp spawning habitat, changes water temperature, messes up their spawning cues. So you see this, like the Chinese paddlefish, which is a fish that could get up to like 20 feet long, uh, just went extinct like two years ago. Oh, it did? It, because of I didn't know th that. three gorgeous I mean, I dam. didn't know about the damn fish, but... <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. So tell me about that fish then. So Chinese paddlefish, one of two species of... Have you ever seen an American paddlefish? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they're cool, right? Yeah. I mean, so Chinese paddlefish was a predator. American paddlefish are like filter feeders. Yep. They, when they open up their mouths, it looks like a basking shark or something. Yeah, yeah. The, Chinese paddlefish was a predator, more like a billfish, and it would use, it would have like a sharp paddle, and it would use that paddle to hunt. And it was actually going after catfish and whatever yeah, else. Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, carp, catfish probably. And yeah. grew to 20 feet long. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. But the last one that was seen was like early 2000s. So when they built that big ass dam. They well, built two big dams, Gazuba and Three Gorges. Three yeah. Gorges is the really big one. And those dams just made it impossible for the paddlefish to survive to spawn it must have blocked their they couldn't access where they need to spawn anymore and did someone point out th this is a question i've had about the dams we've done on the you know the dams we've done on the columbia system and others where was there someone that said uh you know if you do that that fish will be gone was yeah. that a known thing i don't know i wonder what people knew 100 years ago we know that now but, sure. I mean, no, no, I'm talking in, uh, no. In, oh, like three words. Well, no, I've asked that question many times around salmon. There was a, always a, a, a way that, that there, it was probably in people's bag of the head. There was always a way people felt they could explain away ways in which it wasn't the end of salmon. Yeah. Because it was going to be ladder, you know, whatever. It, it, no one would, there was no one saying like, and yes, this will be the end of King Salmon. Or in yes, this will be the end of that run. Um, they didn't put it like a, it wasn't laid out like that sort of arrangement, you know? Yeah, maybe it never, maybe it never is. Yeah. We like, used to have King Salmon in Nevada, believe it or not. Oh, and no, I didn't know that. Yeah, we used to have runs that came all the way up the snake. Yeah, but with these newer dams in China, um, you know, it's was just it like, known that you would, that they would blink this fish out? The biologists know. Yeah. But, you know. We They're, tend not to listen to those guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When yeah. it comes to big construction yeah. projects, just the Washington Wildlife they never commission. get invited. They never get invited <laughs> to the last meeting. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. that's true. I mean, you could laugh about it, but it's true. Like yeah. there are stronger interests at play. Um, yeah. But on the Mekong, it's and you know this happened on the Columbia too. It's like what you really want. So you know, we there's just, I think salmon populations are like ten percent of what they used to be on the Columbia or whatever. But on, Mekong is the same way. Like. 2 million tons of fish produced by the Mekong River every year. So if you're going to build dams, like think about that because it's like they're so important. Mm -hmm. So the, what you want is like not to be totally ignored, but just like, okay, hey, we'll take, we won't build the worst ones. We won't build the ones that are going to collapse the fishery or cause extinctions of all these fish, whatever. So that's, I mean, that, and my work, that's basically what I do is just to try to provide information about all these fish so that like the worst dams aren't built. Uh, so you can go in and say, here's this, here's this species of fish. Here's what its life history is. Here's what its habitat needs are. Um, if you do this, that 
here's the price you'll pay. Yeah, yeah. Do with it what you will. Yeah, and that's happening right now. So in Cambodia, this world's largest stingray is just swimming around. It's actually in a, 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 a small area that's protected by the local community. It's right between two of these big proposed dams where it lives. It's just stuck there. Well, no, the dams aren't there. So it's just swimming around happy. I mean, it doesn't know any difference. But so, And that's an area where hundreds of fish spawn. It supports the whole fishery for the Mekong River. And they're, right now there's a debate. Do we build these dams or... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, or protect the area. So the, the decisions that you're talking about, they're, that's happening right well, now. Well, where are they leaning? If you had to guess, if you had to crystal ball it. The Cambodian government said no dams before 2030. Okay. So that's good. It's good in the sense that they're always alternate, you know, technology improves alternatives yeah. could come up. So it's a, as far as like that type of development decision, energy, it's always good if it happens in the future because things are always improving. Yeah. Isn't it a funny kind of reverse colonialism that we have a little bit where we've uh, really effectively developed our country and created this economic powerhouse and all this infrastructure and, and dams and the ability to generate so much electricity and be global players. And then you then go to the developing world and, and, uh, and say, man, um, I'm here to tell you to not to do the things we did. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, yeah. <laughs> because it, you're going to lose your catfish. No, yeah, exactly. No, but it, it feels that way, Yeah. but it's not, don't do it. Yeah. It's like, Hey, cause I mean, I'm trying to think of an example in the U S I mean, we're starting to bring down some of our dams yeah. in the U S that are like the ones that don't generate very much electricity or that totally messed up the fishery. Yeah, we're taking them down fast and we're putting them up. Yeah. But we had our hundred years of, you know, yeah. building a lot of good and, or I don't know, good and bad dams, whatever. But I think what the goal is in places that are still developing and building a lot of these dams is just don't like, you know, using the best information that's out there, just try to make the best decision, you know, like maximize benefit, minimize cost. Yeah. I'm with you. Rather than like, Hey, you can't do this. Um, rather be that you can yeah. and if you do it this way you'll decrease yeah. the damage and anyway like if or biologists you know if some of it doesn't do much good to say you can't do this anyway i mean no one listens to say hey you can't you can't do this you have to say why you have to i mean fisheries yeah. are everyone relies on fisheries there so they do like yeah oh yeah that, fish, that's, fish that's for breakfast food. lunch and dinner yeah, yeah. Hey, you know i wanted i forgot i was gonna tell you about it the thing with freshwater saltwater. Are you familiar with the Susitna River system in Alaska? No. So in South Central, like the Susitna flows out near Anchorage, so South Central Alaska, there's this big river system. And um, very important, like big salmon runs, okay, like, you know, kings, like just everything, right? Um, I realize I don't know if that river gets sockeyes. I should know. But King runs, Silver runs, Pinks, all this stuff goes up this river system. And someone, and I can't remember when, they know when it happened, uh, someone moved Northern Pike into it. Okay, So, of course, Northern Pike are native to Alaska, and like the Yukon system has Northern Pike. But someone helped 
you know, at some point in time, someone helped Pike into the Susitna. And uh, it, there's the potential for it to be devastating to salmon. And they've really spread out. And like another thing with how, how in trouble kings are, kings spend extra time in fresh water. Kings spend an extra year in fresh water. So they remain for, they have a greater vulnerability to this new predatory fish. So there's a lot of interest in um, how far could the northern spread, right? The, the, the demographics on the population, how much damage might they ultimately do to um, the salmon stocks? Well, these northerns, these northern pike started showing up and different adjacent river systems. And the idea was that people were continuing to move them around. But they can go to these other river systems and look at stable isotope compositions in the fish. And those fish are going into salt water, which no one thought they would do. They're going into salt water, being fine, and actually entering new river systems from salt water. Northern pike. Northern pike are going out into salt. Yeah, I like think blue cat, blue, I think blue catfish wandering around and then shooting up new river systems. I mean, blue catfish will do that too, won't they? I've, oh, I, I didn't th- know. I feel like I've heard heard of that as well. You and you, then you're left to be like, well, how in the hell did it get in here? Must be those more of those rednecks doing bucket <laughs> biology. That good old and it turns biology. out that fish is like whatever he gets. You know, I was asking. Danny, I was like, so do they, he goes, I don't know what the fish is trying to do. I don't know what it wants to do, but it does it. Yeah. Right? They spread. I mean, they things, wow. things spread, man. When they, I, you remind me of the, the story in the Ebro River in Spain. So a, a German fisherman uh, took over like 30 baby Wells catfish in his VW bug in the seventies and put them in the Ebro River in Spain where they're not native. And we were there several years ago and that's it's now 90 percent of the biomass of fish in that river oh our wells catfish just yeah. enormous <laughs> yeah that's one of the big ones isn't it yeah, yeah they get really big. Big. well i mean yeah i mean yeah, they're big. They, you don't need to go that far because um the great lakes yeah it's oh, like yeah. yeah yeah if you go back in time on the great lakes the like there was uh like a, a sturgeon fishery white fish right yeah dominant species yeah. man yeah dominant all the way down in chicago like dominant species and it's just been that it's been rewritten and rewritten carp were put in there because they thought they'd catch on as food and then all the accidental all the intentional um it's an experimental aquarium mm. yeah on the ebro too that so the they were introduced there and people uh it's catch and release like it's not catch and release by law all the anglers practice catch and release. So like no one's eating them either. Yeah. The, the Sp- Spanish people apparently don't like to eat them. What? The recreational anglers just like to catch and release. So that's why there's like 90, 90% of them are, yep. are wells. It's kind of, you get these weird situations. Yeah. Now and then they'll make it that it's like with certain invasives, they'll make it that it's illegal to, to keep it. Yeah. To return it alive. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's illegal yeah. to have, it's illegal to put it back. But um, I don't want to name his name. But you know when they got lake trout, they got lake trout in Lake Yellowstone, and they're very worried about the cutthroat snare. So they're encouraging everybody to go, and you know they wanted people to catch them and kill them. It was illegal to turn one back alive. I had a buddy who was always down there fishing, 
and he's talking about letting him go. I'm like, oh, why? You just, what do you mean you letting him go? You're not supposed to let him go. He says, man, I love fishing there. I don't want to damage that fishery. <laughs> it's just like people just get whatever. We they had get selfish. Thing, we had a thing a couple of years ago or three years ago. Maybe it was a little longer than that. When all those Atlantic salmon got out of that net pen sure, up, in, up, in, up in the San Juans. Yeah. People had a shit fit there. about that. Oh, man. And people were up there just wailing on them things. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, if you catch one, kill it sort of thing. Were they easy to catch? From what I heard, I didn't go up there. I can't say firsthand, but from what I heard, they No were, one's catching them anymore. They all died or got uh, caught. They, yeah, they, they I didn't, haven't they heard didn't of ca- one. They didn't take hold. Yeah, I haven't heard of one. We yeah. have a similar thing going on in eastern Washington with Northern Pike in Lake Roosevelt. And I've heard in a couple other places, too. It's cop in it's Australia. A, where it's... Carp. Yeah, yeah where absolutely. It's kill them on, it's kill them on site. North, yeah. Northeast and... Uh, it's Roosevelt and Banks Lake in eastern Washington, is what I was told. Uh, Arapaima. That's a cool fish. Yeah. That, and that's something. Are, are like they that, all right? They weren't, but it's sort of a success story because uh, they don't move that much. Yep. And so the, it used to be a traditional, and still is, but like a, they have to come up for air. So it's a traditional like spear fishing, harpoon. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, the boys I was with, um, like their dads, that, that was a market fish, trade fish. They'd kill them and salt them. Yeah, for very small amounts of money, and they just don't know. Yeah, Dude, they, 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 that's got to be a tough, tough fish. Dude, they make cowboy boots out of them things, skins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they would get a dart and they would get a prong into it, and then just basically handle it like a whale. Really, with with, with a line. Just yeah, yeah. the goal is yeah. to get it, it tethered. <sighs> you know, to get a toggle in it, and then you just whatever. Nantucket sleigh ride. Just slowly, yeah. You just slowly. <laughs> yeah. Once you get a rope on it, yeah. you just it just it's just a yeah. drawn out procedure. Yeah. You, were, you, know? you were in Ghana? Yeah, but no, yeah. I never did it. But I'm just saying oh, okay. they were telling yeah, me about yeah, how yeah. they would do it. They would basically that you'd it'd come up or you'd find it basking and like the first order of business was to get a toggle in it with some rope and then and then it would, would begin the process. Yeah. <laughs> the species in Ghana, so I there are a couple like Scientists recently figured out there's more than one species, and the species in Guyana is apparently a lot like fatter okay. than the other species. And one guy, one biologist who works down there, says that he actually thinks that they'll get big, a bigger, like a 700 pounder or something. He thinks that, oh, wow. he thinks that that's the biggest. This fish. is going to take the record. Yeah, but that's a that's a thing with, I mean, this whole project. I always assume like there are no rules. Like you could fish the fish can be caught. However, like the only thing is like. Okay, where you know where was it caught? How big was it? I always assumed that I would hear from people, biologists and fishermen all over the world, with stories of bigger fish. Like I, I didn't think it was going to be me going out and trying to gather information. And I thought, the fish. Yeah, yeah, I thought it would. There would just be, you know, fishermen like talking about catching big fish. I thought that it would be like reported, but there just aren't. They just don't get that big. Um, remind me again right now the current freshwater record is 661 pounds do you got are you, do you, you know what you ought to do man why don't you just get like a little pot of money <laughs> and start like a global derby yeah so with with stingray we're like i'm 99 percent sure that they get up to maybe a thousand pounds so it's just what 
what we were able to record. Yeah. And luckily able to like tag and now we're getting information about it, but we're, I'm pretty sure that they get a lot bigger. Um, you know, what are the chances of the one that we found is oh, that is the single biggest fish? It's not. So. No, no, no. Yeah. There's no one. Well, no, that's not, that's not true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are most of the biggest fish females that you're seeing? Yeah. Or? The okay. stingrays. Mm. Yeah. The, yeah. And apparently that's the same with marlin as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. The big, the biggest stingrays are females. Interesting. Yeah. They typically anchor themselves to the bottom as well. When you're fishing for them. Yeah. yeah. So they'll, you hook into one and it'll go down to the bottom and basically fishing for it is trying to get it off the bottom. Yep. And yep. then it also weighs 600 pounds, but. There've been many times where we nearly cut a snag <laughs> and it turned out to be a stingray. Yeah. I've yeah. had both. Yeah. <laughs> where I thought it was a snag and it was a stingray. Yeah. Yeah. It's always cool when you, yes. just, you just have something that's, oh, you just cussing and. Then it starts to move. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Dragging the boat. <laughs> yep. You yeah. don't think there's a great big white sturgeon up there landlocked up there in the other I'm gonna go, I'm, in the you, you, somewhere? I'm curious. Yeah. Oh. The global big fish derby. Dude, man. my money, and I'm biased, but my money's on a good old American white sturgeon. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm a good man. Well, well the, other, the other thing is, too, is all these records and stuff. Like, if you start a derby, then you have to have rules. Yeah, why don't we talk well, to the we talk about that? that. <laughs> talk so, about that. Lord, Lord Hope, uh, the blood right sucker, a bloodsucker doesn't latch on to your, your yeah. world record sturgeon. No, but so IG, Heaven forbid I, there's IG, a lamprey on it. IGFA, uh, all of the records, so they're much smaller than like the largest documented fish. Oh, yeah. 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 So like, yeah, like stingray, you know, the, big, the biggest white-tailed deer, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he wasn't killed by a hunter. Yeah. And so I, IGFA yeah. record for point, giant catfish, stingray, arapaima, it's all much smaller than oh, sure. the largest fish because you have to follow all the rules. So. Oh, yeah. It's just way different. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the biggest whatever, it's like it wound up being that it just washed up on the beach one day. Yeah. Dead or whatever. Yeah. You know? Which from a like biology perspective is fascinating. So like that's... I, yeah. You're okay for, from, Yeah. For my work, I include that, but yeah. you know, it wouldn't work for a derby. So your book came out when? Book was published uh, April twenty fifth. How's it been going? It's been fun. Good, yeah, it's did great. You book, did you book events? Yeah, still doing them. Yeah, it's been great. It took uh, took over ten years to write. So did you write it was, really? Yeah, it wasn't a quick. Well, ten years ago, did you know you were writing it? Ten years ago, I knew I was interested. Yeah, we no. So we, I worked with Stefan Lovegren, who's a writer with National Geographic, and we've worked together forever. And so we wrote the proposal in 2011 and then spent the last 10 years just traveling around and, and gathering where, where, information but here, you know was where was the publisher ever kind of be like hey what happened to the book there were a couple of publishers oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i got it yeah. so but it wound up landing with university of nevada press which, which is where i work yeah which is where you work yeah that's great. So it all it all it all worked out in the end. And we didn't know. I mean, started out look asking what question is you know, what fish is the world's largest and Yeah. Um it wasn't until this last year that we found a larger one. So Yeah. But like I said, there's a question mark that lingers over. Oh yeah. There always there always will be. And yeah. it's what I'm gonna you know, it's what I do, so I'm gonna keep working on it and But if you uh let me ask you this, if you had uh and you kind of answered it, but if you had to guess, um, 
it's it's if you had to guess do you think the record will stay with that stingray species or do you yeah. think that or do you, do you got a feeling like the catfish is going to blow it away or what i want the record to be broken like because that's that means the fish are healthy but are you betting on the stingrays or are you betting on some other thing like just from your hunch, right? Come on, <laughs> like, you know, Tommy's Tommy's betting on white sturgeon. I'm betting on white sturgeon, yeah. and I'm going all in. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the stingray, but you do. So they're like, yeah, there's these stories from way back when of much bigger fish, dude. Yeah, divers from Bonneville Dam coming up with these stories <laughs> of these dudes. These twenty foot sturgeon is bigger around as VW bugs. I grew up with those stories, man. Well, and those big catfish eating people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, or Loch, yeah. like Loch Ness monster. If, oh, if no, come on, no. they'll be cl- come on. No, but, no, but I'm saying if any like you hear so many stories. Yeah. When those stories turn out to be true, maybe not Loch Ness monster, but whatever. Like, that's good. Like that's interesting. It never. Sure. It very, very rarely turns out that those stories are true. But yeah, I hope. I mean, I hope someone catches a bigger fish next year. It's like if you've been to the Mekong, you, millions of people fish in that river. You you would never believe in a million years that the largest fish could occur there because of the amount of fishing and other stuff sure, that's going oh, on yeah, there. Yeah. So the fact that it's still there is great. I hope I hope there's a bigger fish out there. I hope the Arapaima in South America, I hope they catch a 700 pounder next year. So uh, I got one last question for you before plugging your book again. If you go to the Mekong River and I take a crawler, leaf worm, put it on a hook, <laughs> flick it out, am I probably going to get hit fast? No. 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 Oh, I'm not? No. Get, in the Amazon, I don't mean by the giant catfish. No, I mean no, just a hit in general. No. no. So, really? Yeah. So you can draw on a worm and not get a hit. There's so many people fishing. Yeah. So like I went uh, on the river one day and I, for like five miles, I counted a thousand nets. Oh. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying about how it's incredible that these fish are still. They got a piranha type species there? No. So yeah, yeah, yeah. South, I mean, South America, it's still, I mean, they have, I forget what that species, but the piranha, like if you try fishing in South America, like piranha in a second. Is, yeah. has been my experience. Sure, yeah. Um, you throw that bait out there, you're going to get a hit. Yeah, yeah. Because in, in South America, uh, in a lot of places, people are still selective mm-hmm. about what fish they're eating. They want a big fish, certain kinds of fish. Yeah. In Mekong, it's like, I mean, you catch a fish like that, that's that's food. I was in the Philippines one time, and we were at a fish market, and I was expressing to the person i was with that like how could all the fish in the fish market be so small meaning i mean there's it's all fish the size of your finger right and squid and he said yeah it's like this he goes then you'll come in here tomorrow and there'll be a 40 foot whale shark laying there he goes it's just what gets caught man (laughs) no he's like it's what gets caught wow if it gets caught it's gonna be here in this fish market yeah selectivity is we work a lot with local people fishing and we, we monitor we for the last three years we've recorded every single thing that they catch in their fish trap mm-hmm. and these fish traps so it's a it's an arrow shaped trap made out of uh, bamboo that can be like a kilometer long so it's oh, wow. do you know like a fike net yep so it's a big wall within like a, an arrow mm. so the fish get like they hit the wall they swim along it's aimed downstream it's in the lake oh I'm sorry. so okay. yeah no. but the lake drains so yeah the fish have to move as the lake drains uh and they catch uh 
like 120 different kinds of fish and a ton, each trap, they're like 10,000 of these traps. Each trap catches a ton of fish a year. Mm. So it's like. Just so productive. Yeah, right it's crazy. But it's very much, you just reminded me of that because they like, we, some days they'll catch a thousand of one kind of fish and then the next day it's something, it's like, we're trying to understand what's going on, but yeah, it is kind of like crazy. trying to understand the system. Yeah. yeah. Like why? Yeah. Well, if you're wondering why, you'll find a lot out. You see that, Tommy? That's hosting. I like that. You'll find a lot out in Chasing Giants in Search of the World's Largest Freshwater Fish by Zeb Hogan with Stefan Lovgren, uh, host of National Geographic's Monster Fish, which covers, as well, the show, right? Covers a lot of the material in here, but covers like the most show, things, if you really want records, to find out, read the damn book. Biology, yeah. It's got a big photo section in the middle. Normally, I didn't get around to it. Normally, when we have people on, I read their book. I'm pretty good about it, but I didn't read your book yet. I just, well, wanted, I just I, wanted to tell I, you so you didn't have, have to think. I have a copy. I don't want you to talk to someone later and be like, that's some bitch never even read the book. I could tell. I'm just telling you I never read the book. <laughs> I'd like to. It looks good. It's a beautiful book. Color photography. Chasing giants in search of the world's largest freshwater fish. Anywhere books are sold. Anywhere buy it online. Yep. Good luck, man. I appreciate you coming out. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Tommy. You're welcome. And thank boys. You. Appreciate it. Uh, head down to the to the First Light store. We'll take care of you. Haley, Idaho. You'll know them when you see them. Dude, this place is crazy. I'm <laughs> jealous of the mannequins. Plug plug it a little bit more, mate. Huh? Plug, plug it me, for us. Plug it for to, us. What do you want me to talk about? This well, place you, you really, got 45 is, seconds. It really is a destination. It's incredible. When you walk through the front door, there's a great big giant bull laying there with three years worth of sheds yep. laying next to it. That's, That's my, admirable, dude. That's my bull from 2020. There's also a rifle sitting right inside the there's door. There's a rifle oh, It's there. a fake one. Oh, it's Steve, fake. Yeah. Steve Rinella it's County. father's backpacks like, over here You could just come in here wall. and be like, stick them up. <laughs> but, uh, I didn't know fake. this was the women's section. That explains why none of them clothes look to fit me. Well, maybe one day. But, <laughs> I think yeah. Tommy's pushing for a job down here. Hey, man, he's hired. No, man, I might be politicking my way into something. Oh, my way in. <laughs> Yo, All right, guys. You. Well, thank you very much for coming on, man. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Two-thirds of Americans are at risk of experiencing an electrical blackout. You could be one of them, sitting in the dark and cold for hours, for days, maybe even weeks. Are you ready to protect your family? You could be with the Patriot Power Solar Generator 2000X. These things are sweet because this generator has double the capacity and is expandable. Go to 4patriots.com slash meat eater to get your solar generator now. You'll even get a solar panel included free. Go to 
4patriots.com slash meat eater. For hunters who are seeking the ultimate edge, Quiet Cat's Apex Pro is the answer. Its unparalleled performance and stealth are designed to enhance any hunt. Quiet Cat is more than an e-bike, though. It's a revolution in how you approach the wilderness, ensuring you can go further and hunt smarter. Save 10% on the Apex Pro and elevate your pursuits when you use code MEATEATER at quietcat.com.